0: Okay, thanks for joining, everybody. Good to see you this evening. I don't have any special announcements, so I'll let Robert get right into it with the continuation in our study of Acts.
1: Okay, then let's listen to the rest of the recording on Acts chapter 2.
2: Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and addressed them. You men of Judea and all you who live in Jerusalem, know this and listen carefully to what I say. In spite of what you think, these men are not drunk, for it is only nine o'clock in the morning. But this is what was spoken about through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it will be, God says, that I will pour out my Spirit on all people, and your sons and your daughters will prophesy, and your young men will see visions, and your old men will dream dreams. Even on My servants, both men and women, I will pour out My Spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. And I will perform wonders in the sky above, and miraculous signs on the earth below, blood and fire and clouds of smoke. The sun will be changed to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and glorious day of the Lord comes. And then everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man clearly attested to you by God, with powerful deeds, wonders, and miraculous signs that God performed among you through him, just as you yourselves know, this man, who was handed over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you executed by nailing him to a cross at the hands of Gentiles. But God raised him up, having released him from the pains of death, because it was not possible for him to be held in its power." For David says about him, I saw the Lord always in front of me, for he is at my right hand so that I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My body also will live in hope. Because you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor permit your Holy One to experience decay. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of joy with your presence. Brothers, I can speak confidently to you about our forefather David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. So then, because he was a prophet, and knew that God had sworn to him, with an oath, to seat one of his descendants on his throne, David, by foreseeing this, spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was neither abandoned to Hades, nor did his body experience decay. This Jesus God raised up, and we are all witnesses of it. So then, Exalted to the right hand of God and having received the promise of the Holy Spirit from the Father, he has poured out what you both see and hear. For David did not ascend into heaven. But he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know, beyond a doubt, that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified both Lord and Christ. Now when they heard this, they were acutely distressed and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, What should we do, brothers? Peter said to them, Repent, and each one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children, and for all who are far away, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. With many other words he testified and exhorted them, saying, Save yourselves from this perverse generation. So those who accepted his message were baptized, and that day about three thousand people were added. They were devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Reverential awe came over everyone, and many wonders and miraculous signs came about by the apostles. All who believed were together and held everything in common, and they began selling their property and possessions and distributing the proceeds to everyone as anyone had need. Every day they continued to gather together by common consent in the temple courts, breaking bread from house to house, sharing their food with glad and humble hearts, praising God and having the goodwill of all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number every day those who were being saved. Acts 2, New English Translation.
1: Okay, I know that was a very long chapter. And in fact, we covered the first few Versus last time. So we're going to try to get through all of it. I have actually a lot of things to cover. So, well, we'll see. We'll see how far we make it. Well, let me get straight to it. Let's talk about the setting very briefly. I really want to discuss the speech itself. But, you know, sometimes people debate whether the speech was in Aramaic or in Greek. Of course, the book of Acts is written in Greek. That doesn't mean that everything, you know, said, in those events, was in fact in Greek, but it is probably more likely that that all of this happened in Greek because many of the people there would not have understood Aramaic, right? They were coming; they were Jews, but they were coming from all over the known world, and um, Aramaic would be unintelligible to them. So that's just kind of a side note, but so that you can you can kind of imagine what's going on. Now, public speaking was common in the ancient world, right? We're used to this in movies and books, you know, seeing the Greeks uh, speak publicly and, and as such. One would normally stand up to speak. This would be helpful to you visually and acoustically so people could hear you. Now, notice from the scene that thousands of people hear Paul, uh, Paul, uh, Peter, I mean Peter. If I say Paul, I mean Peter. Peter. Um, some... Sometimes people express skepticism about this and there's really no reason to be skeptical of this. We have modern reports of people without any help of a microphone or speakers and as such being able to address tens of thousands of people. You know, some of the examples that would come to mind from preachers would be like Charles Spurgeon. Um, there, there's an account of him addressing over 23,000 people. And then George Whitfield a preacher in the 1700s, also a very famous preacher. If you know your, your church history, you will recognize the names. He would preach also to like 30,000 people at a time. This is just kind of interesting, but Benjamin Franklin thought this was fake. So he decided to test this. And he he went to a location where George Whitefield was speaking, and and Benjamin Franklin kept backing up until he could no longer hear him clearly anymore and then did some math to figure out how many people could fit there. And Benjamin Franklin confirmed that, in fact, George Whitfield could be heard by about 30,000 people concurrently. Um, And I actually looked up a modern analysis of this. Somebody did computer modeling to figure out if Benjamin Franklin was correct. I'll give you the short version of the story. Yes. Uh, Benjamin Franklin, in fact, underestimated uh, possibly about 50,000 people could have heard George Whitfield in certain locations that had really good acoustics and such. Okay. So yeah, a speaker addressing thousands of people is possible. And um, in fact, it's not all that rare. So imagine that setting. Peter gets up to speak and he's addressing all of these people. What does he say? Well, he begins with a deflection. Because what has the crowd just said? The crowd said, these people are drunk. And that's where we left off last time. So Peter has to address that. By the way, this is not an odd interaction in the sense that in these public speaking engagements in the ancient world, this back and forth between the speaker and the crowd um, was expected. And sometimes there was some level of animosity, like a sort of argument between the two going on. So, um, you know, what is the deflection to their charge? Hey, guys, it's nine in the morning. Nobody's drunk at nine in the morning. and he's he's not wrong at that time, just like today, drunkenness was more of a nighttime activity. In fact, it, there was extreme prejudice against people who were drunk. Early in the morning, uh, that would have been a rare thing, and they would have been looked they would have been looked upon with much negativity. So, uh, he's you know he says that like I said, this is happening at at nine in the morning. Now, his deflection actually is quite kind. He does not use mockery. He probably is using a bit of an ironic tone, but he's not antagonizing the audience. And I think this is important because from the very beginning. Peter is trying to win them over, right? And and I I really do think that that is key. Then, how how does his formal address begin? He starts with the words, know this or let it be known, depending on which translation you are using. This is a classic form of rhetoric in the ancient world, and it's quite daring. This kind of language was used in the Old Testament to confront the nation of Israel, right? Particularly when they were being disobedient. This is how a prophet might start. So, uh, immediately this would get their attention. Well, then he goes into his main argument. And what does he do to, to argue his point? He is going to begin with a quotation from Joel. Then he will have two other quotations from psalm 16 and psalm 110 we will get to those in a minute now there's something that we miss i think when we read this passage and it is that peter quotes joel kind of and what i mean by that is that he actually changes a few words and then he omits a section technically if if you get hyper technical he makes like five or six modifications but some of those don't seem uh, like they're meaningful anyways, but at least two of them I think are very meaningful. Now, doing this is really not that odd. I'm not implying that Peter did something wrong or was trying to be deceitful or anything of the sort. It, It makes sense to sometimes add a few words to a quotation to explain it, particularly when you're pulling it out of context, right? Imagine if In modern life, I was sharing the gospel with someone, and I used John 3.16, which we studied last year. And imagine I said to that person, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, Jesus, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Now, of course, if you know the gospel of John, you know that the word Jesus is not in there. But why am I adding it? just so I can explain who is being discussed in that verse. That verse is famous. I'm clearly not trying to trick the listener or anything of the sort. Well, Peter does the same thing. He changes the text slightly to explain it to the audience. And there are two changes, like I said, that are quite significant. One is at the very, very beginning. If you go back to the Joel text, like if you pull it up in your Bible, you'll see that In the the very beginning of that quotation, it says, after these things, okay? But that's not what Peter says. Peter says, in the last days, says God, okay? In the last days. So essentially, Peter is, is giving us a clue there that this text is eschatological. It's talking about the end times. And he does that with that slight variation in the text, And of course, his speech will relate to this, the fact that the Spirit has been poured out, the Messiah has come, all of these are the events of the last days. And then the second modification is that Peter omits a verse. He omits the verse that says, because in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem will be survivors, though saved, just as the Lord said. Now, that verse is the most Israel-centered verse in the Joel quotation, but like I said, Peter takes it out because you will see in his argument, he is saying this is applicable to everyone, right? And and actually in the Joel verse, it's applicable to men and women and young and old. And then once we get to Psalm 10, beyond that, he will say, this is the offer to all people and to your children and to Gentiles and so forth, okay? So... This, this is important to notice. And to be honest, I've studied this text many times before, and I'm not sure that I ever caught that either. So whenever I say that, like people neglect to notice such and such, I'm including myself in that bucket. Now, I've gone through acts very carefully in the past, and I feel like I'm always learning. Well, so let me dis- discuss then these two modifications or or what they really mean. I will keep this brief because I'm beginning to kind of repeat myself week after week after week. Um, But there's this idea of the last days, right? I've mentioned this again. This is probably the third week in a row that I do. So I will only add this. If you read through the Old Testament data, when I say data, I mean verses. That's just how scholars talk about it. Um, When you look at the Old Testament data, on the last days, you're going to find two kinds of verses for the most part. You will find verses that talk about the glorious restoration of Jerusalem and Israel as a whole. Okay? And then you will also find verses that talk a very painful period, a great suffering that happens right before. But both are referred to as the last days. The suffering and the Great Restoration. Notice that this fits perfectly with what I discussed on chapter 1, when I said Luke is presenting this here but not yet eschatology. Like the events, uh, essentially the kingdom of God is here but not fully here, right? And in that in-between, if we take the Old Testament data seriously, then we can expect difficulty, perhaps great difficulty. Um, So this is the context that Peter is is bringing into the text by changing that one phrase. Then the other modification, leaving out that most Israel-centric verse, is to emphasize this idea that the Spirit will be poured out on all people. Now, that phrase on all people, if you look at the Greek, it literally says all flesh. And some translations, I do believe, just translated all flesh, Um, I didn't have the time to go through the different ones and confirm that, but I I do think some translations use that, the older ones, perhaps. Um, So uh, Peter kind of makes sure that we don't get derailed from that point, that these promises are not just for the ethnic nation of Israel, but for all people. And again, that he will build and build upon that point. Now, the Joel quotation ends with everyone calling on the name of the Lord. Calling on the name of the Lord is an incredibly uh, familiar expression for Jews at the time, and I suppose it would be for Jews today as well. In the Lord, which in Greek is kurios, which you can spell with a Y or with a U, whatever, um, the, the Lord means God, right? God Almighty, the one God in the Old Testament. Now, notice that Peter applies kurios to Jesus, okay? And he just does it. He, like, doesn't explain it or whatever. He just does it. And this is incredible because, and I mean that in a good way, because sometimes you hear from people that um, this high Christology, and what I mean by high Christology, Christology is our understanding of Jesus Christ, as you can probably guess and when we talk about a high christology is that we understand Christ to be one with god almighty right so we understand him to be as exalted as high as as we can conceive of him well sometimes you will hear people say that this high christology developed over time that we don't really see this in the new testament or we see it very light well I suppose you could say that Acts was written later, so maybe Luke was making all this up. I mean, you you could argue that if you're a skeptic. I I also think that argument would fail, but but if you take the text seriously, this high Christology appears immediately. Immediately. I mean, we're in chapter 2, and Jesus is Lord, and this Lord is the Lord from Joel, and the Lord in Joel is clearly God. So that's... very clearly what Luke is trying to convey. Well, Peter, when I say Luke is because he's the guy writing it down, but what what Peter is conveying. Um, It was relatively simple for the church to make this word connection because the word Lord is not actually specific to God. It just means Lord. Uh, Sometimes, you know, it could be applied to Caesar or to a number of people. So, They could refer to to Jesus as Lord, but then through the Old Testament connected to God Almighty, and effectively say that Jesus is divine in a rather clever way. But by clever, I don't mean obscure. I mean, this would have been clear to anybody listening to this. In fact, you know, it was clear to people uh, when Jesus was preaching. We read this in the Gospel of John when they tried to stone him. So again, this was by no means obscure, but it is rather clever. Um, Okay. So, that is the quotation from Joel. Then, Peter, by verse 22, invites the audience to listen again. This is another rhetorical device, and if we had more time, we would maybe analyze these devices a little more closely because they're clever and neat, and, you know, you can compare them to other Greek speeches and all that stuff. But, at any rate, he again kind of grabs the attention of the audience and he begins a new section he brings up jesus and then he says jesus was you know essentially we have proof of of who jesus was because of the signs and wonders okay and these signs and wonders some of the people there would have been familiar with them firsthand some of the people there would not perhaps many of the people there would not have been familiar with them firsthand but Peter tends to assume that they've heard of them. You know, that the the word has spread very far and wide. Now, this phrase of signs and wonders is also a very powerful phrase for a Jewish audience. For us, it just hits us like, okay, he did miracles. But for them, this is a little bit different. This phrase appears in the Old Testament many times, and it's generally referring to prophets who've done great works because of the, the power of God, But it applies particularly to Moses. Anybody at the time would have thought of Moses. And just to kind of prove that, um, the the story of Moses is mostly in um, Exodus. But then we get kind of this recap in Deuteronomy. And I'm going to read that just so you see how much the phrase is tied to Moses. It says, No prophet ever again arose in Israel like Moses, who knew the Lord face to face. He did all the signs and wonders the Lord had sent him to do in the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh, all his servants, and the whole land. And he displayed great power and awesome might in view of all Israel. Right? Moses, the kind of the OG of doing all the signs and wonders. And Jesus is, is even greater than him. And so this language is very provocative. Well, then Peter gets kind of mean, so to speak, because he points to the audience and says, and you killed them. You guys killed your God-given king, the guy who did miracles, you know, the true Lord, the true Kurios, you killed them. Now, of course, uh, that certainly would have caused a reaction. And I want to address uh, two things here. One is sort of a detail, but I've seen it come up particularly lately because of what's on the news. Um, Sometimes people, honestly, non-Christians, but also sometimes Christians, will accuse writers in the Bible of being anti-Semitic. So it's a little strange because they're all Semitic. (laughs) They're all Jews. But I suppose you can be like an anti-Semitic Jew. I don't suppose that's logically impossible. Um, Why? Why do they say that? Because of a passage like this one, where Peter charges the death of Jesus on the men of Israel. Okay? Now, I'm not going to spend too much time on this because I find this argument to be quite dumb, and I'm sorry if I'm being overly dismissive. But we do this today as well without applying any kind of racial bias like let's say we use the expression Russia invaded Ukraine well we're putting the invasion on the head of the Russians but as a nation we're not you know we're not saying that if you pick out any individual Russian person uh, they're somehow predisposed to invasions or something no we speak collectively everyone does that and it makes sense when the person or the people who have made the decision are particularly the leaders of a country or had a lot of public support, which in the story of the crucifixion of Jesus, you have both. You have the leaders that are on board and then you get the crowds, you get the public support. So it's fair to say it is Israel. It is the Jews who killed Jesus, but no one would go from there to some kind of anti-Semitic idea. so, again, I find the accusation to be rather dumb, but I want to address it because it does come up. Now, the other thing that um, that I think is perhaps worth addressing, if if nothing else but a, but a short comment, is that this speech is quite offensive to the audience. Now, I, I don't want to say, well, then we got to go out there and offend people as questions. But I think it does show that sometimes to preach the gospel you have to be a little bit offensive. I don't think that you should attempt to be offensive, but yeah, I mean, if somebody says, hey, yeah, don't don't share the gospel, you know, that might be offensive to people. Well, yeah, that that's not a great reason not to. So I'll leave it at that. I write a little bit more about it on the blog if you want to read it, but there you go. Okay. So again, imagine Peter... He just went through Joel. Then he makes this very provocative accusation. You guys killed him. This is on you. And then he quotes Psalm 16. Okay. And although, and we will see this throughout Acts, although the death of Jesus is very important, is pivotal. In Acts, in the speeches in Acts particularly, normally the emphasis is in the resurrection. And this makes sense because the resurrection is what proves that that death was so special, right? If Jesus had remained dead, we would not be followers of Jesus. Like we, we would not be talking about it. So it makes sense to focus on the resurrection. Besides, the resurrection is what gives us all hope. Well, so you know, he he quotes a section of Psalm sixteen. I will read it. Um, it's it's very short. It says, "I saw the Lord always in front of me." For he is at my right hand so that I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My body also will live in hope because you will not leave my soul in Hades nor permit your Holy One to experience decay. You made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of joy with your presence. Okay. Peter makes the following argument. David, who one would think the the psalm is about, and perhaps let me give a little bit more background, the audience would have assumed, probably correctly, that the psalm was written by David, and it was about David. And if you're not very familiar with the Old Testament, which is totally fair, David is the greatest king, right? Like, whenever the Jews would have thought to their golden age, they would have thought about David. That It's just... He's the greatest. The time with David was the greatest. Okay, so again, these are all provocative ideas. Well, what does Peter say? Hey, um, David is dead. You know, his soul is in Hades and his body decayed. So this psalm cannot be about David. This psalm has to be about someone else. And whose soul was not left in Hades? Jesus, who rose from the dead in three days, whose body did not experience decay, Jesus, who came back from the dead and had a resurrected body. Remember, I emphasized this when we studied John. This was a real body. He had a resurrected body. Now, as a sort of aside, I I will mention this. It is a little bit unclear what Peter believes is the original meaning of the psalm. Because we could take this in two ways. Essentially, it could be that Peter thought the Psalm really was originally about David because if you if you read the Psalm and read the Old Testament, it really does seem to say that, Psalm, that sorry that David was in trouble, but then the and particularly he was in bad health and then the Lord helped him to recover. So this the Psalm is talking about David's restoration of health. And so perhaps Peter acknowledges that this psalm originally was about david's health restoration but it has a, cer- a certain principle that finds a greater fulfillment in jesus or alternatively peter may have thought that the psalm was always about jesus okay it was originally intended to be about the messiah and you know that's that's tricky to answer that's very difficult to answer what what really Peter is thinking in that regard. And I suppose we could make arguments both ways. Uh, but I just thought I would acknowledge that because sometimes people have questions about it. And I guess if people want to talk more about it more, we can. But there you go. But whichever whichever direction you take this, however you you think Peter was thinking about it, the point is the same. That the 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 true fulfillment of the psalm came with Jesus. Now, uh, one more thing I want to add here is if you're thinking, well, then Peter was just grabbing any one text that would fit and applied it to Jesus. This is a totally invalid argument. You know, he's cherry picking or whatever. Well, what I would respond to that is that actually it was common to apply this psalm to the Messiah, not by Christians, by Jews, and not only before this time, but after as well. So everybody seemed to understand that the psalm was waiting for a greater fulfillment with the messiah the only disagreement is whether the messiah is jesus or not okay well the notice that the the psalm also talks about the the lord at the right hand this point I mean, again, I'll address it briefly because I think it's familiar to us. In the ancient world, the left hand was oftentimes considered dishonorable. Now, in the context of sitting by a king, sitting to the left hand of a king was still a very honorable position. However, it was not the most honorable. It would be sitting at the right hand that would be the most honorable. In fact, that that idea, that phrase of somebody sitting at the right hand could be used to convey the idea that, that person the person sitting at the right hand had the authority of the king that the king effectively had delegated his authority to this person at his right hand uh we have example of this in greek literature not just in in you know jewish stuff um i think i gave one example in the blog that my eyes can't find right now but it's there if if you guys want to want to read it i'm pretty sure i, I gave an example um And the other theme that comes through in Acts, uh, verse 28 at this point, is this idea of joy. Um, This comes at the end of the quotation of Psalm 16. And, you know, this doesn't add to the theological point that Peter is trying to make. So I think it is relevant that Peter left those last two lines in the psalm talking about joy. And this will be a theme, again, throughout Acts and really throughout the Christian writings. If we ever read one of the letters of Paul or whatever, there is this idea that we are preaching good news and it brings joy, right? There's joy in miracle working. There's joy in suffering, in hope for divine vindication. There's hope in celebrating eternal life. There is joy in celebrating others' conversions. There's joy in celebrating other good news, like when you find out someone has recovered and is now in good health. There's joy sometimes that's empowered by the Holy Spirit. Okay, so joy is really a recurring theme of the Christian life. When it comes to Hades and decay, again, these are a bunch of kind of little points, but I do think that they add to, to us understanding the text fully. The the one point I want to make, Hades is clearly a stand-in for being dead. The, the text is not, is not committed to Hades being like a real place. Now, I'm not saying that these people did not believe in some sort of afterlife. What I'm saying is Hades was a rhetorical device to speak of somebody who was dead. But what we can't notice here is that the soul is in Hades, but the body suffers decay. So the fate of the soul and the body are different in Psalm 16. And you may think, Robert, that is the most obvious observation you have ever made. Well, I say that because there's really quite a few people who would say that, particularly in the Old Testament, Jews did not have a conception of the soul, that they thought that people were simply material beings. And Psalm 16, for example, which is quoted here, is one of those places where you see, no, they they seem to have this dichotomy between body and soul. Yeah. Now, I know that the, we could argue about that forever if, if you hold that opposite view, but there you go. Well, so what is Peter arguing through Psalm 16? Well, that Jesus is the one who lives, right? Jesus is the one that the grave could not hold. Jesus is the one whose body did not see decay. So therefore, Jesus is the Lord and again, remember how significant that word is. Jesus is the Lord sitting at the right hand of God Almighty. Um, it's you know it, it's a very powerful point, and again, it shows a very high Christology. Now, a last detail on this, and I'll move to the next section of the of the argument, but. Peter actually does give the argument in a very respectful way. He says, if I can speak confidently, which sometimes is translated, I may say boldly, which I think we take the wrong way. Like like he's saying, I am totally right and don't want to hear from you or something like that. Actually, that, that phrase was used to, to say kind of the opposite. Like, don't be offended by what I'm about to point out, Right. Peter knows that he is delivering a heavy message that will take some consideration from the crowd. Yeah. So Peter has made an argument from Joel, an argument from Psalm 16, but he is not done. He brings in another scripture, Psalm 110. Okay? And uh, Psalm 110, let me go back and, and read it right quick, is the one that says, I saw the Lord always in front of me for he is at my right hand so that I will not be shaken. Oh, wait, no. am I re- Sorry, scratch that. That's incorrect. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know beyond a doubt that God has made this. Oh, sorry. No, I read too far. It was just the three lines. I promise, guys, I, I know what I'm doing uh, most of the time. <laughs> the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. That's what that is. Okay, so let me find my place again. Now, let me give you a summarized version of the argument. If Jesus is in God's presence, right, at his right hand, then uh, Peter can infer that Jesus is in heaven, Um And then Peter bolsters this argument with Psalm 110, if Jesus is already enthroned at the Father's right hand, then he has begun his messianic reign. So the messianic reign is now, and hence the messianic age has begun, and the messianic blessings have been given, that being the Spirit. So Psalm 110 kind of corrects where things could go wrong in the sense that, okay, So we're in the last days, but what does that look like? It looks like Jesus reigning now. He is in heaven at the right hand of the Father. He is exalted. He is the Lord. And he has poured out the Spirit. Um, And I'm skipping over there quite a bit. Um, Let me mention one more thing, and I may stop for questions because I I still didn't get a chance to get to the response of, of the crowd. But we have this idea of the enemies will become his footstools. That phrase developed because of the idea that that conquering armies, you know, conquering people would normally trample over those who had been defeated. So it, it is quite aggressive imagery. It particularly makes, makes sense in Psalm 110 when, if you read the Old Testament, most of it is wars between different nations. Well, I don't know if I can quantify that, but but let's just say large portions of it deal with war. But this certainly conveys the idea that that those who oppose God will eventually be defeated. It, I mean that that's very much part of the story. I I do want to clarify one thing. I, I feel like sometimes um, people perhaps misunderstand the the Christian claim and say, well, just because. I, I just didn't agree with you. And, you know, now I have to be punished and destroyed or something like that. Really, in, in the Christian story, generally speaking, we would say that there's a real battle and the people are either for good or for evil. And so whenever, you know, the enemies are made into a footstool, like, again, follow the narrative. These are the people who crucified Jesus and, and were proud of it and would not repent. I mean, people who truly oppose the goodness of God, they will be, Defeated, um, and that is part of the promise. That's part of Psalm one ten. So, um, I'll kind of conclude the argument, and then before I get to the response of the crowd, we can open it up for questions. Um, but in conclusion, then we, we get that that phrase that I read that I read by mistake. We get this proclamation: "Let all the house of Israel know." Right. Very climactic in this speech. Jesus is Lord, which again, a very provocative statement, very, very powerful. And by way of Psalm 16, he is the Christ, which is to say, he is the true Davidic king. The Jews are looking forward to the seed of David becoming king forever, right? Ruling forever. And he's saying, he is Lord and he is the Christ. He is this Messiah. He is the king he is the one you have been looking forward to. And this truth um, demands um allegiance. Like if really goodness himself has personified and come, then this demands a response from everyone. As a side note, calling Jesus king uh, was a very dangerous endeavor that would make you a traitor to Caesar. Now, calling him Lord could also be tricky, but it could be construed as less political. So that also, probably explains to some extent why Lord was normally the title that Jesus received. Not that Christians were afraid to die for Jesus, but you know, you, you don't always need to throw yourself to, to your death. Um, okay, I will stop there. If, if people have questions or discussion, and then we can go on if they don't.
0: Sure, thanks, Robert. As always, guys, if you'd like to ask a question or join the discussion in any way, just write the word question in the chat. Uh, you don't need to write your question; just the word "question" will suffice. I'll bring you in in the order in which we receive those, starting with my own area of interest. And this is um, a very minor point in the lesson; that's probably unimportant. But I guess I had never thought of the origin of "right-hand man," and you hear that all the time, and you know what it means, but you don't really think about why that saying exists. And I've, I, I at least I know from my own experience that in some at least in religious or, or cultures of faith that I've known that left handedness is frowned upon or even discouraged or even like, I'll slap your hand until you stop using it. Uh, why is that? What is it about left handedness or the left hand that is viewed as inferior, bad? It, it, do we know? Or like what's, what's the origin of that?
1: So I can't speak for all cultures, um, because there might be different reasons in different places. But um, you know, in, in many cultures, uh, the, the perhaps the ones that are not so advanced, um, they designate a hand to do the less worthy tasks, like, you know, wiping your butt. I okay. mean that quite literally. Yeah. Um, and so you would have a clean hand and you would have a dirty hand. And your clean hand you would use to eat, for example. But okay. if you use your left hand to eat, people would have been horrified because that's the hand that you used for other business shall we say
0: okay so there's not really necessarily like a a scriptural reason or theological reason or something it's just strictly the culture of the time and sort of sanitation habits basically yeah
1: yeah it it would have been just a cultural thing um i guess the only
0: reason i ask is because i've only noticed that at least in my own experience in like religious contexts so i guess i just assumed that it had some sort of religious reason but maybe it's just a cultural artifact from long long ago. All
1: right yeah yeah, I think it, it's just cultural. but you're right and I mean back in the day people would even discriminate against left-handed people
0: hmm. uh, Denby, if you'd like to chime in, go ahead.
3: Uh, yeah well actually just first thing about the left and right hand. well, you know the word uh, dexter dexterous mm-hmm. Ambidextrous? that literally means both right hands, both on the right. And then the word sinister is left.
0: Uh, how so? Like in what language context?
3: Uh, Greek. Oh,
0: Sorry, okay.
3: uh, uh Latin. Latin. Dexter is right. Sinister is left. Oh, okay. And um, it's it's really uh, just a, a feature of humanity. Most people are right-handed. That's their dominant hand, mm-hmm. and the left hand is uh, is usually the, the the non-dominant hand, and um, the reason that left is seen as kind of bad or deceitful is because people who are left-handed uh you know they could re- you know say to like shaking hands reach out their right hand as if to say you know i'm i'm you know i'm I'm not armed i'm not here to hurt you yeah and then they have the the blade in their in their dominant hand you know so that's one thing and you know like that maybe you do it, or don't know this, but you know, Romans drove on the left for the reason that their right hand was their sword hand or either weapon hand. And so, um, you know, because left-handed people were in a minority, and you the left person, left-handed person could fool the, the majority, there was kind of this idea of kind of being untrustworthy because of that and that's one of the reasons that it's not religious it's just a cultural thing and that's yeah. why the word sinister means kind of underhanded nasty deceitful that kind of thing hmm. all right well
0: thanks for the thoughts did you have anything to add to that robert or yeah kind of oh sorry or- sorry or yeah. yeah if you have a, a closing thought on it go ahead
3: oh yeah just a couple others yeah the first uh, uh robert one thing i think is an interesting point here is that about um was Peter speaking Aramaic, Hebrew or Greek? And surely the answer could be yes because it's Pentecost.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's certainly possible. and in fact, we could speculate that the reason that if if it was in Greek, we could speculate that Peter could speak Greek because of Pentecost. I mean, those are certainly all possibilities. Um, you know, So yeah, that's certainly possible
3: you know like they, they, everybody heard their own language so there wasn't like that they were you know they the apostles were really like suddenly you know but everyone heard anyway um one final thing about um the jewish people and i think it's something that that a lot of people don't give them enough credit for is they're the pretty much the only people whose history they speak ill of themselves you know, they, they they say they were weak and, you know, most other people, like histories, like the Greek stories, like Achilles is perfect. You know, he's the greatest warrior with only one fatal flaw, but, you know, he doesn't ever do anything wrong. You know, he never really, you know, like he's favored by the gods. And it's, whereas in the, the, the Bible says you know, the people who don't want to be prophets run away from their duty. You know, and the it, the the scripture doesn't shy away from people's failings, like David. Uh, you know, as a man after God's heart, not because he doesn't do wrong, but because he knows what right is. Not because he doesn't screw up, because of course he does. All anyway, right, thought that yeah.
0: Thanks for the thoughts, Demby. Did you have any uh, response to that, Robert?
1: No, I I think that's that's very true. I mean, the the Old Testament is very critical of the Jews. So going back to kind of one of my earlier comments, if we're going to accuse anything of being anti-Semitic, it's like their own scriptures. And I I say that in kind of a funny way, in the sense that they criticize themselves plenty. Uh, And it is their own prophets who are like damning the Jews all the time. But we can move on to other points.
0: All right. Thanks, Danby. Generally specific, go ahead if you're ready. need a minute i can come back to you, no,
4: if you I'm, I'm good sorry oh, okay. about that um yeah, yeah i kind of misspelled believe there <laughs> that's why i'm prone to believe the bible because their heroes are very much criticized they're flawed deeply flawed and uh like he was saying all the other heroes from all the other literature are like flawless uh look at muhammad oops oh, sorry whoa my microphone volume one way up there okay so i got a couple questions um my first one's a, a real brief one i'm not really necessarily expecting an answer right now but maybe we can get one in the future um you know, it said that vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, um, but God does nothing in the earth without, without sending or using a man that's his current modus operandi, right? Uh, thus can a warrior for God, a old broken down, retired paratrooper that needs a spirit of self-control and sometimes wants to choke slam and skull drag people that are not righteous, which I'm working on it. Pray for me brothers. Um, it, it can, can that be an implement of God's wrath? Um, like David with Goliath, uh, for instance, and just put a pin in that and I'll ask my other question real super quick. Um, Something that astounded me as I'm thinking of things, as I'm ingesting the Bible, digesting the Bible, and fusing myself with the Bible, I thought it was very interesting with Moses. when, When Moses had the king snake staff, well, the other sorcerers, they had the ability to, to make snakes too, right? So this seemed like it was a commonplace thing, this sorcery, this pharmacia, this, um, this ability to do supernatural things, whether they be divine or whether they be demonic. But there seemed to be an abundance of supernatural events. Now, fast forward to what you were talking about. If I walked with Jesus, saw all those miracles, he can walk on water, yet he can't raise his voice loud, loud enough to satisfy Ben Franklin. You know, he can resurrect from the dead. He can cure a leper. You, you find it hard to believe he can raise his voice enough so that tens of thousands of people can hear. Him. So I guess my question is this, um, something that sounds to me is this, uh, with all the, the miracles written that Jesus did, Moses as well, there must have been an abundance of supernatural conjuration effects or events in those days. How could Jesus be confused with a common quote unquote rabble rouser with all the testimonies if there, if these miracles were more commonplace is the only way that he would really get confused with just the rebel, right? Not the Messiah. All right. Take my, I'll take my answers. If you have any.
0: Yeah. Your thoughts, Robert.
1: Man, these are very big questions. So I don't know that I can really provide great answers in the time that we have, but I will maybe, uh, you know, just comment briefly on them Um, on the idea of good. You know, could people sometimes be the tool for, for vengeance, perhaps we could put it even more explicitly and say for violence uh, or or something of that sort. Um, of course, we all know there's generally been two streams in Christianity. One that is completely uh, pacifist, uh, you know, the Amish, the Mennonites, and so forth. But generally speaking, uh, Christians have held that there are times when we need to fight. and And now, I don't know if that's kind of what you were thinking, but but yes, I mean, generally speaking, Christians have thought that there are times when we should fight. I just wanted to acknowledge the exceptions. Um, and maybe one day we can talk about that at much more length because that would require preparation on my part. And then as far as confusing Jesus for for just a nobody, um, I I mean, it. there doesn't, I don't think it's the case that at the time there was a lot of supernatural activity. I'm not saying that there was none, but you know, we don't have accounts of like a lot of stuff going on by the time of Jesus day. I just think there's a lot of disbelief um for both some people are just skeptical, but I think uh this is gonna sound really harsh, but I think people did not want to turn from their sin and so to accept who Jesus was uh required a lot of commitment on their part um so and we'll get to that next week with the response of the crowd, so but I'll leave it at that,
0: okay. Uh, thanks, generally specific. Uh, Nathaniel, you're good to go if you're ready.
4: Hey, guys. My first time on here. Well, so, thanks for joining. Yeah. So, yeah, I had a um, quick question. So, Robert, how much do you think uh, of um, this sermon was inspired, like from the Holy Spirit? Because um, Peter. Probably, you know, he probably would not have had any formal training like uh, Paul would have. Right. So I don't know if he would have had memorized all these texts, you know, memorized the the, the Psalms in his brain. Right. You um, know, I'm not he could have been a good public speaker before, but how much do you think was inspired and how much was his own natural ability? Thank you.
1: Oh that's that's tough to answer but let me kind of stick to to what i know somebody like peter would have known some of these scriptures just because pretty much everyone did right the all the jewish boys they would have gone to school and by that really i mean their dad and the local synagogue would have taught them a lot of scripture they would have memorized it so i'm not really surprised that he that he knew those However, to your point, we see this very, high, this very high Christology, right? At this point, Peter is outright preaching Jesus Christ is God, and we see it from the term kurios, we see it from uh, how he's the Lord in Psalm 16 and in Psalm 110. I mean, he's making all these equivalencies. He has this very developed theology at this point. And what's shocking is that just like forty days before this, or fifty days before this, during the Passover, he didn't, right? He still didn't quote unquote get it. And so there's this like tremendous growth from one event to the other. And I think that we are supposed to to kind of infer from this that when Jesus appeared to his disciples and taught him all these things, right? And there's verses to that effect in Luke and in John, and uh, yeah, at least in those two gospels that Peter really did, like his eyes were open and he really did learn a bunch of stuff. And then beyond that, do I think that there was kind of additional inspiration to make him a, a very good speaker and persuasive? And of course, there's the speaking in tongues and all that. I mean, I think it's kind of all of it, right? There's this empowering by the Holy Spirit, in addition to his training as a young boy, in addition to the lessons from Jesus himself.
0: Okay, thanks, Nathaniel. We have uh, Gilgamesh up next. Gilgamesh, go ahead if you're ready.
5: Uh here's an interesting thing about the whole hands thing. In like the Muslim world, you have one hand you eat with, and they still do this. They'll eat with their with their hand and the other hand you clean. Your, well, when you commit a crime, like that's what they'll do is they'll cut off the hand you eat with. So you have to eat with the hand you what you clean yourself with as punishment. And if you're and that way everyone knows you're a thief. So they don't put pe- this is how Muslims deal with crime. Like if you're a liar, they cut your tongue out. They don't put you in prison. They'll just slice your tongue out, and everyone know you're a liar. If you're a thief, they cut off the hand you eat with, so that everyone knows you're a thief, so you can never commit another crime. Now, sex offenders, on the other hand, they they outright cut their right in public. They do the, they'll say like, if you rape kids. Like in Iraq, they'll cut your dick off right in front of everyone and you bleed to death. That's how they punish right. how they do crime. I'm just We're saying trying to
0: run a family production.
5: <laughs> I know. I'm just pointing out that when it comes to like we put people in prison yeah. for crimes, they cut off the hand and make everyone know you're a thief so you can yeah. never do it again. That's how you know I'm just pointing that out about the hands thing, is that Yeah. yeah. You have to clean yourself and eat with the same hand. That's a, an awful punishment for being a thief. You lose the hand you eat with, so you have to eat with the hand you wipe wipe yourself with. So it's pretty disgusting. You have to eat with the same hand you clean yourself with. That's a damning punishment in the bosom world for a thief. That, you know, when you were talking about the hands thing, that's how they deal with it. Instead of lock them in prison, they go cut the hand off. That way everyone knows you're a thief and you can never commit another crime. All right. What do you think about that, Robert. Isn't yes. that a fitting punishment? Then everyone knows it, you committed the, the. You're a thief, and you can never do it again.
1: You know, I don't know that I really want to comment whether that's fitting punishment or not. But I mean, you're you're not wrong that that is a practice. And um, like I said, this division of hands, like one for dirty things, one uh-huh. for clean things, is still yeah. alive today. Say in places of India, if you were to use your left hand to eat, people would be. Mm-hmm. because yeah they, still Arabia, they, to this they do
5: the same thing like they'll eat you know i've seen it where they sit around a table and they take the bread and they pick it up with the with the food and they eat it that way with their right hand and they wash the you know they wash their hands before and they dry it off but they never use the left hand even if they yeah. work they this is their dominant hand they always eat with the right hand that's how you know even if they yeah if they're left hand they always do everything with the right hand
0: all right as far as eating and stuff so thanks. I for just you,
5: want to point
0: that out. Yeah, huh? thanks for your thoughts. Huh? Uh, I accidentally skipped over Chris and Donald, so let me come back to them. Uh, Chris, go ahead if you're if you're ready. Sorry, I missed you guys.
6: Yeah, no worries. Um, so I, you know, I had a thought back when um, back when Robert was talking about like anti-Semitism in the Bible. You know, the accusations and so forth of anti- One of the one of the uh, the thoughts I have about this, you know, when people accuse, uh, you know, because. When people accuse the Bible of that, uh, I, I suppose it's because when we say, "Well, you know, the Jews uh, had cru- Christ crucified and things like that," and there's a lot of there's a lot of passages in the Bible where the the word the Jews is really refers to the leaders. And the way I the way I kind of think of it, uh, and maybe this is helpful to other people, when Paul Revere said the British are coming, he meant the British military. Everybody was British, right? I mean, we were all. British subjects right so I mean it's kind of like that so when they say the Jews did this or thus or such you know you because we're going to get into that even as we proceed deeper into Acts where the Jews showed up and said this or that well I mean and everybody in the story is Jewish Jesus was Jewish his disciples were all Jewish but that's kind of what it means would you agree with that
1: yeah absolutely I again I I find the argument that speaking that way is anti-semitic to be just just kind of beyond the pale, to be honest. It's like, again, when I hear somebody say, "Hey, the Russians invaded Ukraine," do I accuse them of anti, whatever anti-Russian would be? <laughs> if Russo or this.
0: whatever the t- yeah, I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> uh, there's a term for that though. There's got to be. Uh, all yeah, right, thanks, you Chris. Go. Thank you, you guys. Uh, Donald, go ahead. And sorry for uh, missing you earlier.
3: No problem. Hey, uh, Sir
1: Robert Beckham, in <clears throat> verse twenty-five. I saw the Lord always in front of me, for he is at my right hand, so that I will not be shaken. Would I be forcing a point or stretching it to say, gee, that looks like um, a a text for the eternality of Christ, the um, equality of Christ with the Father, that he is begotten, not made. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. Uh, I mean, absolutely. In fact, I kind of skipped over this just for the sake of time, but part of Peter's argument is that David calls this person his Lord. And that's that's very impactful in that culture because uh, generally speaking, for somebody to be somebody else's Lord, they'd have to be older, they'd have to come before, you know, or hold a higher office or both. But in this case, David was king, so there's really nobody who could hold a higher office from a human standpoint. Um, So essentially what Peter is saying, who could David, the greatest king of the Jews, call Lord, it would have to be somebody divine. There's there's no other alternative, and that's Jesus. So yeah, that is part of the argument. I don't know that we could get to full kind of a saiety. Uh, not that I disagree with the saiety of God. I'm just saying perhaps this wouldn't get us there, but it certainly points to it.
0: Cool. Thanks. Thanks, Donald. Uh, one more request to speak from JT. Go ahead, if you're ready, JT.
7: Hey, it's Jason. Everybody, uh, good good chapter tonight. Um, there's a line there. Uh, my head's spinning just reading it, but um, I'm pretty sure Robert talked about this in the text. This has to do with like the birthplace of the church. Now, before this event here, I don't know if you mentioned it, Robert, but um, the church was not unified and empowered in any sense. The Holy Spirit only existed in the in, in the hearts and minds of individual believers. Like when Jesus breathed on the disciples in John chapter 20, they were born again. But the Holy Spirit had not descended yet, so the church was not unified or empowered. In other words, they had the indwelling, but not the outpouring. And so what we see here is the initial or the inaugural outpouring. It's Peter's charisma, And yes, whoever asked that question earlier, he was completely and totally spirit-filled when he gave this charisma. For all you Greek freaks, that's proclamation. Um and all these events here, and it's interesting about Joel's prophecy. None of that stuff happened right there. None of it. What he was saying was, this is not what's happening right now. This is not that, but it is like that. It is of the type of the same thing that he was talking about in Joel. But this is not that, but it is like that, is what he was saying. If there's any confusion about that, because those events are yet to happen. In fact, uh, the end of that is the the sixth seal. Of Revelation, Jesus also talks about it in Matthew 24, the cosmic disturbances just prior to his second coming. Um, I mean, there's just so much in this chapter, but and it warrants uh, individual study. The book of Acts is my favorite book in the Bible. All, it has been since I mean, I became a Christian at 24 and literally almost from that day. This has been my favorite book. So 20 years ago. But um, I appreciate this and uh, it's going to cause me to look a little more into it. Uh, as you notice there's 3000 souls were added too you notice who did the adding unlike when david took the census and he added himself the reason it was such a sin is because the lord is the one who's to do the adding he adds to the church we don't when churches take rolls every week and roll call and they say this is how many people and all that how do they know it was 3000 people got saved were they looking into the hearts and minds of these people no the Lord added the three thousand souls. It wasn't humans doing it. So anyway, good chapter, good comments. Thanks, Matt. I'm out. Yeah,
0: thanks for the thoughts. Uh, do you have any response to that, Robert?
1: Well, my, my only response is I, and I know this is going to stir controversy, but I would push back a little bit on the idea that these events here have not happened yet. I think that the way Peter is using the text, he's using it to talk about things that happened. Um, but the reason that we're coming to these different conclusions is uh, we we have different eschatology, um, right? That's like we have different understandings of how the end times will come about. That is a much broader discussion. Um, so just to kind of be fair to him, since I know he doesn't have the time to kind of debate with me or whatever, I'm just going to say, people can read the text and kind of make up their own minds on whether Peter is using this text as something that has happened, or like he said, as something of of the type of thing that has happened, but really the text has not been fulfilled. Matt, I don't know if you want to
0: have... Yeah, Well, Jason, you've been challenged, so I have to offer you a response if you'd like. He is
7: one. right about that. There yeah. are two different ways to look at it. Absolutely. Mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> okay. Thanks for the thoughts, man. Uh, I did have one more request to speak from Lag. Uh, if you, I know we're over time, but i'm i'm good if you are robert okay lag go ahead
8: all right sorry i sent the request earlier but i must have bumped something that made it a direct message to someone random so
0: uh yeah uh, yeah or maybe i missed it it was uh, oh no that's that's been been kind of lively tonight so it's harder for me to find the
8: to find the uh request to speak yeah yeah no i i went back to check that's been happening a lot Hmm. because i'm on my phone i think anyway i had uh two comments one of which because it's after I'm going to make really really super short and that's just uh as far as the left and right handed stuff uh the bible is definitely not against anti uh against left-hand lefties cuz uh hmm. it does have the the Israel's premier left-handed assassin back in judges he's, he's not mentioned for very long but it's a fun very short story in judges 3 but the more uh significant comment slash question that I thought of was as regards the um with Peter's speech here one of my thoughts with it has always been while he is talking mostly to a crowd of Jews he also mentions um they, they put one of his phrases in my translation it says it can be translated as either with the help of wicked men or with the help of Gentiles and I think one of the points he is making is that for essentially all of these believers, all, all the people who become believers afterwards, and many of those who he's, who he's speaking to, I think one of the points he's making is that all of them, all of us essentially, would have been bo- in both of in, in the two relevant crowds—the crowd that he's speaking to. So, like all of us today, we can think of ourselves as being in this crowd that he's speaking that he's speaking to now, and in the crowd from several weeks months before that was shouting crucify him everyone all of us as believers are one of his points i think is we should think of ourselves in both crowds i was wondering if that's something that uh you would uh, agree with uh robert or if that's um something you've considered
1: i mean i think that that certainly fits the theology of the book I I think that that particular phrase in there is more of a jab to to the Jews and I I put this in my blog and then I skipped over it. so let me say it briefly you know Peter has just said to them you guys killed your king you guys killed the guy who did miracles and died and came back today to, came back to life sorry the guy who is the lord like he made this whole argument and it's like you guys killed him and then he adds but you did this through lawless men, that would be the, the verbatim words in Greek, right? Which which probably, I think our translation, the NET uses the word Gentiles. And so essentially he says to the Jews, not only did you kill him, but to do it, you got in bed with Gentiles, with people who denied the Torah. And then he adds this phrase, he says, at the hand of the lawless men. And that phrase at the hand is very reminiscent of, many passages where people do bad stuff, but they try to escape guilt. So they do it at the hand of somebody else. So essentially, Peter just lays it on as thick as he can. He's like, you killed the guy? You try to escape guilt by using somebody else and that somebody else you used was, quote, lawless men. Essentially, you guys did this as dirty as you could. Um, It's actually a very powerful accusation. But, but again, theologically, I agree. We can see ourselves in this crowd in in, in some sense.
0: All right. Thanks, Lag. Uh, any other thoughts before we call it a night, Robert?
1: Um, no, I think that's it. So we'll finish the last little bit of this chapter that I didn't get to. And then chapter three is rather short. So maybe, you know, we'll do all of chapter three. We'll see how far we get.
0: Okay. Well, thanks for joining tonight, everybody. Much appreciated. And uh, if you missed any part of the study or if you'd like to listen to studies from the past or read any of Robert's uh, written descriptions of the studies, of course, all those resources are available over on my website, mattchristiansandmedia.com. Look for the Bible study page. Uh, Through the Bible study page, you can contact Robert or, of course, you can contact me anytime if you'd like to. And uh, we look forward to seeing you for future studies each and every week, Friday at 9 p.m. Eastern time. Have a great night and a great week.